Hi everyone, Jessica and Emily joining you now for our second episode in the Women in Energy podcast. We're talking about navigating the roadblocks in this episode. Really in the first episode, we got a chance to hear from two very outstanding women about standing out in the industry, getting noticed and what it was like for them. This episode, we focus on the inherent challenges faced by women in the energy industry and how two highly respected industry powerhouses overcame those roadblocks. Later in the episode, we, you will hear from Regina Mayer with KPMG, but let's get right to it with our first interview with Melody Meyer. Emily and I actually recently visited with Melody about her decades-long career with Chevron and her experiences being assigned overseas with her husband and young children. And right now we have the pleasure of talking to Melody Meyer. She's the president of Melody Meyer Energy, founder of Women with Energy and non-executive director of BP, AbbVie and NOV. Great to have you, Melody. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're very welcome. We want to start off by talking to you really just, uh, you've had such an amazing career, but can you tell us about the start of your career in oil and gas? Sure. Um, well, I guess it started with engineering at university, at Trinity University. and. Um, I guess I was always good in math and science, and I went off to college thinking I'd be a doctor, but I didn't have enough money to go to medical school. So one of the professors said, how about engineering? And uh, fortunately, my dad is a petroleum engineer, and I knew a lot about engineering and oil and gas from him. But I went into engineering and just loved it. And when recruiter came to campus for Gulf Oil to hire some oil and gas engineers for the industry, they interviewed me and I had the opportunity to start with them. So they gave me 24 hours to accept, and being dirt broke, I accepted <laughs> and went with them, and I couldn't have joined a better company. It was Gulf Oil, and then Chevron ultimately bought uh, Gulf after my fourth year in the industry. So it was a very familiar industry to mm -hmm. me, but you know, of course, almost 40 years ago, I was one of the few uh, if not only women engineers coming in to that division. Could you tell us about your time at Chevron? You spent, I mean, you just recently retired after 37 years with that company. Um, how did being able to stay with the same organization for that length of time help you progress your career? Well, I had an extraordinary career over 37 years. And I think, um, you know, this industry, to be a leader in our industry, you really have to have a diverse set of experiences to be able to work in different basins and different fiscal environments, different countries. And very fortunate for me, starting from that West Africa project experience right off the bat, I started traveling to West Africa when I was 23, 24 years old. And that was just a massive, you know, experience. In fact, it was kind of funny because, um, Early on, I, they didn't allow me to go to West Africa because I was a woman, but I would go to um, France and work with our contractors, and my boss would go to Angola or Nigeria to work and, you know, with the field teams. And finally, he just said, to heck with this. You, yeah. know, you need to go do your work, and, and you know, I'm, I also want to go to Paris. You know? <laughs> so he, he, so we, he went to bat, and I started traveling over there. But as I got into that international side of the business, it really got me hooked on um, working globally. And I really spent the first 20 years of my career working international projects and operations. So I worked on the startup of three new countries, which was the Papua New Guinea project, the South China Sea project, and uh, Kazakhstan. 
And in those projects, you know, Papua New Guinea and China, I was traveling extensively working to get the development project started and taking it to um, you know, our executives to get the funding approvals. But with Kazakhstan, I was one of the first leadership team members on the ground actually putting together the operation and putting together the organization. And that was, um, you know, having the chance to work three new startup countries was extraordinary and tremendous learning. But in this industry, you really have to have that diverse set of experiences and you know, working with partners, working with foreign governments, working with ministers and uh, around the world to have the expertise needed to lead big divisions in this industry. And I was able to do it with a young family. So when I started rotating in Kazakhstan, my children were three, six, and eight years old. So they were very young and that was a bit of a stretch for my husband and I to say, okay, we can do this. But um, my husband was incredibly supportive, so he jumped right out and said, you need to do it, um, which was great. And, but it, it really helped me develop the leadership skills. And Melody, if you can, tell us about, you mentioned, uh, of course, at the start of our interview, being uh, one of the few female engineers, one of the first. Um, when you first entered the industry, can you tell us a little bit more about any challenges that you face, anything you can really pinpoint that you know, you'll remember forever, forever type thing? So when I came into the industry, it was such a novelty to be a woman in the industry, and I could tell countless stories that I'm not going to. <laughs> but there were biases. I mean, there were a lot of blatant bias comments made, and there were um, some, you know, um, different biases. And I always just felt like um, I wouldn't react to them. I, for me, it was all about being very professional and not letting anything bother me, letting it mm -hmm. roll off. And I always just felt like, you know, if somebody was biased or had some issue with me, um, it wasn't performance-based. It was just more a bias that they had. Okay. And I did my best always to just do the best job that I could and stay mm -hmm. very professional. You said that diverse leadership adds significant value to company performance. So I was wondering if you could tell like go, go into detail about why, why is that? Well, there's so many studies out today that show how um, companies, uh, highest performing companies are companies with diversity at the leadership teams, the C-suite, the board, you know, the executive, and we, we don't have enough diversity in the energy industry, so we need more. I think our industry would be incredibly more, um, you know, higher performing if we could improve our diversity and the way that we're thinking. You, you know, you can look at any project, and, and today we actually incorporate this in project design, but at, at the beginning of the project, if you see an obvious answer and you just develop it that way, it's probably the uneconomic or very low economic, yeah. but if you step back and say, what are the five ways you can do it, the options, what are the multiple options, the way, you know, so it's getting a lot of diverse thinkers in the room to say, hey, we could do it these different ways. And I have seen so much value unlocked by getting people in the room with different ideas and listening to them, because not always do they get listened to. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another way that both men and women can help each other is when there's a colleague in the room who has a good idea that doesn't get listened to. You know, I think that we can always say, hey, look, Jessica had a great idea. Let's go back and hear more about mm -hmm. this one. Um, but we, ha we have to make it a safe place for people. 
Can you talk to us now, Melody, about uh, you know what went behind uh, the launch and the idea of the nonprofit organization Women with Energy? You've talked about uh, you know mentoring that you do that these days, but tell us about really you know getting behind that and moving forward. I formed when Women with Energy because when I was in um, Asia, in a global sense, I felt like there were you know as a as an American woman talking to a, a Thai engineer or an Indonesian engineer. We don't face in America the same challenges in our careers that other cultures face. Mm -hmm. And my, the thought around women with energy is to continue to build on um, some of that global perspective that I learned by being in a global environment working with our women and understanding the obstacle, obstacles in the Muslim culture and in the American culture. They're a little different, a lot of similarities, surprisingly, okay. but, but some differences. Mm -hmm. And so, I formed the company. I'm working on a book around leadership. I'm, you know, working, um, doing a lot of talking and advocating for women, but but the actual form of the company is still just coming together. So it's um, it's advocating in a global sense around women and helping them be successful in these energy careers. We appreciate you taking the time, giving the advice, and really what you're doing too now with Women in Energy and Melody Meyer Energy to keep moving forward. I, I, I think I can speak uh, maybe for Emily too. You know, yeah. we appreciate hearing that too. It's very inspiring to hear like the phase two part of a career. I think you so much think about the this mm -hmm. first phase, but to think about beyond and what you can do to give back after having such a successful career. Well, thank you for all you're doing to help um, advocate and share stories with women. I, stories are what always matters mm -hmm. for people, and I appreciate the fact that you're wanting to share some stories. So thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed our visit with Melody and how I found it interesting how diverse her experiences were throughout her career with the different leadership roles with Chevron and how that helped shape her successful career overall. I agree. It was really interesting to be able to hear her talk about the experiences she had with being with a company for so long, for the decade she was with Chevron. And then she also mentioned, you know, the second half of her career, I guess, yeah, what the she's. Phase, yeah. yeah, the second phase, uh, what she's venturing into now and no signs of slowing down, which was also <laughs> very positive to hear. Yeah, and inspirational as well. Very much so. We also spoke with Regina Mayer, though, with KPMG, who brought a different core of experiences to the table with her military background. When we come back, we'll hear from Regina about how her experiences with the military helped her learn to be assertive and go for what she wants in her career. Visit oilandgasinvestor.com slash women dash and dash energy to nominate a top female industry executive for Oil and Gas Investors, 25 Influential Women in Energy. Celebrate women who have risen to the top of their professions and achieved outstanding success in the oil and gas industry. We're going to talk to Regina Mayer right now about her story. She's the global and U.S. energy sector leader for KPMG. We have a lot we really want to talk to you about and learn from you, Regina. So first off, if I can just ask you really about how you got your start in oil and gas, what really attracted you to the business? Well, I moved to Houston in 1993 for personal reasons. It wasn't a, a part of the country I'd ever experienced or wanted to necessarily experience, but <laughs> I did. And I, my first client was Enron which was a pipeline company back in the day. And then my second client was Ashland Petroleum, uh, which was based in Ashland, Kentucky, on the border of Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio. 
And I worked in a refinery in Catlisburg, Kentucky, and I literally fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was amazing, all that piping and that equipment and the pressures, the temperatures, the way that all the folks had to work to create products like jet fuel, gasoline, lubricants. And I just passionately fell in love with Houston and with energy at that point. Can you also tell us about your uh, military service, You know, how, your experiences there? and. Um, how it gave you skills to excel in your professional career? Sure. The Army wasn't in my plans either, but when I was a freshman in high school mm -hmm. and I told my guidance counselor that I wanted to go to school in the Northeast, I lived in Hawaii and born and raised oh. in Pearl City, Hawaii. Oh, wow. He laughed at me, <laughs> which I didn't think it was very funny because I really wanted to go to school in, uh, in New York. And yeah. he said, the only way you're going to be able to get there is through an ROTC scholarship because they are not need-based and on paper my parents who were both teachers would have not qualified for mm -hmm. financial aid at the time and I laughed at him I'm like you, are you kidding I'm not going into the army <laughs> uh, but he convinced me and I ended up having a scholarship to go to Cornell for four years with the US Army reserves and one of the first things that I did when I got there was they had us repel off the catwalk in the gym, which was four or five stories high. And mm -hmm. I cried and I was the very last person that did it. I was not a, yeah, I, I was first runner up for Hawaii's Junior Miss. I was a drama student. I was the debate team president, speech president. And the physical challenges were not part of who I was. Yeah. And the Army was very physically challenging. But it, it was an incredible experience I, I got confidence and I did yeah. things that I never ever thought that I would ever be able to do. I've seen you speak at some, like some of our conferences and um, you mentioned or someone maybe was introducing you mentioned jumping out of airplanes and stuff like right. that so oh, you actually yes. that yeah I remember that. <laughs> yeah yes. so that was definitely some to me like experiences that I can't I can't imagine going through. <laughs> I, I have jumped out of an airplane perfectly good airplane five times <laughs> I would never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I learned in the Army as well was there, the Army is, um, you, know some, you know a lot about a person the minute you meet somebody in the Army because there's medals and there are thing that they, things that they wear in their uniform and all those ribbons and badges mean something. And one of the badges that you get to wear if, you, if you're successful is called the Airborne Badge and it shows that you've jumped out of airplanes oh, okay. and you can wear it on any uniform. And being a petite female, I thought, what a great way to demonstrate right away who I am yeah. so that people might take me a little bit more seriously mm -hmm. when I showed up in my Army uniform. And I was given the chance to go between my sophomore and my junior year. I was one of only two cadets that were selected. Mm -hmm. I was the only female. It was 1987. A lot of my colleagues were were not happy with me because you know there was even some grumbling. She's never going to be able to use that skill. Why does she get to go yeah. and we don't get to go? So because I was selected, there was no way I would come back to school without having passed. So even though it was, frankly, the hardest three weeks of my entire life, uh, I did it. That's amazing and really transitions into my next question. If you can just kind of expand on that more, Regina, about how your experience doing what you just mentioned um, you know, jumping out of the airplane helped you thrive in the military, which is traditionally less women than men and mm -hmm. physically demanding. Right, very physically demanding. So I was reflecting on how did I get through it and mm -hmm. just trying to figure out what lessons did I learn from that. 
the key thing for me in terms of my ability to be successful in the military were establishing strong relationships. Everywhere I went, I created very strong bonds with people that I needed to rely on. Not being a physically strong individual, uh, I, you know, my, my tribe, my squad, whoever I was with, mm -hmm. we bonded very, very well. And, and, that, and that was true everywhere, right? When I was in uh, a camp in Fort Benning, Georgia for jump school, when I was in camp in Fort Bragg, North Carolina for officer basic training, when I was in Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana for uh, officer like candidate school or whatever that was, those were some of the best friends I ever made. And wow. you're relying on, on them. One man I remember in particular, a young man, uh, when I was at Fort Bragg, he called himself Ram Bro, and uh, <laughs> I was Ram Bet, and we he did we did everything together, awesome. and I would help him, you know, relative to land navigation and some of the things you had to do with a compass, and perhaps some of the things that were a little bit more cerebral, and he would help me with all the physical activities, picking up my backpack for me when I got tired, yeah. you know, encouraging me to keep going, you know, run, Mayor, run, you can do <laughs> yeah. it. Right, and it was, it's, it's incredible, very, very powerful relationships, and that was the, the only way I got through it. Yeah. Amazing. I definitely think you, you need, like, in different atmospheres or different settings, you need people to there to encourage and yes. encourage, you encourage right. as well. Um, what about in your professional career? Um, would you say the same for that, um, the building strong relationships? Um, what did you do to overcome or navigate roadblocks you faced in your career to ultimately achieve success there? It's interesting because the relationship piece is the common denominator. Mm -hmm. um, and so in energy, the fact that I was so dorky about the refineries, like I really loved mm -hmm. the equipment, I wanted to go out all the time. And anybody that would take me out on a tour or even inside a vessel that had been cleared and yeah, the opportunity to go see it, touch mm -hmm. it, experience it, and that allowed me to build very strong relationships with the, with the people that worked inside the plants. And what would, advice would you give, Regina, to someone maybe trying to find a way to advance in their career? Um, is there certain steps or just things to really look for that you point out? Passion, I think, is really important. And being genuinely interested in what it is that you're doing. You know, you all talked about this morning when we first were visiting about OTC and mm -hmm. being genuinely interested in the equipment and yeah. what you're seeing. That I think is so key. Whatever the industry, if you're in financial services or mm -hmm. if you're in healthcare, if you're in tech, in energy, caring about where silicon chips come from and yeah. how yeah. software gets made. And, and I, yeah, I think that's number one. And then number two is constantly be learning and challenging yourself. You know, and then number three is building strong relationships at every level because even if you're early in your career, at some point, your friends and the relationships that you establish, they'll be CEOs or they'll be senior level executives at some point, maybe some sooner than, uh, or later. And being genuinely connected to those folks will create many opportunities for you in the future. We also wanted to ask you about, you co-founded KPMG's National Veteran Network. Can you tell us more about uh, co-founding that and what it means? Uh, sure. To you. Yeah. Sure. It's one of the things I'm most proud of relative to my military career because I was in the Army ROTC for four years and then I was active reserves for four years and then I was in the inactive reserve for mm -hmm. quite a bit of time. 
before I ended up not um, before I ended up being honorably discharged, and I was a captain at the time that I was discharged. Um, I kn I felt like the army gave me so much, right? Mm -hmm. Like I learned how to drive a tank and. I fired cannons and I, I threw grenades and I became really proficient with an M16 and could take it apart and put it back together in 60 seconds. And all the things that I learned and the relationships I established and the experiences I had make me a huge part of who I am today. Mm -hmm. I never was deployed. I never went to Panama where some of my colleagues went. I never went to Iraq and mm -hmm. the first Gulf War. I never experienced a lot of the trauma that uh, my colleagues and servicemen and women today have experienced. And so when the firm came to me and said, we'd like you to co-found a veterans network, we, we have many diversity networks, they're really important to our firm. I thought, well, I'm really not a veteran. Yeah. I, I felt, frankly, like an imposter or a fraud because mm -hmm. I've benefited hugely from being in the military and I didn't necessarily feel like I could give back. But I talked to the colleagues that wanted to do it and because it had been a grassroots effort. It had been led by some of our, my colleagues in the Northeast and they were so passionate about wanting me to partner with them to bring it together and make it successful for the firm. And I felt once I got into it, this is my way to give back yeah. because we cannot repeat the mistakes of our past and treat people who have served the way we've treated other generations, in particular our Vietnam mm -hmm. era vets. Mm -hmm. So if I can help society establish better connections to help those that have served our country and sacrificed the, the, the ultimate sacrifice, frankly, and get them reintegrated in the workforce and get them to where they can have happy, productive, successful lives, great families, et cetera, and overcome some of the challenges that they have, then that's the ultimate way that I can give back. I just really appreciate your time, Regina. It's definitely some great advice right there that you, you talked about, like the, the building re relationships and constantly be learning, mm -hmm. being genuine and passionate. I, th I definitely, I, you know, think that's true. We appreciate your knowledge and you sharing that experience with us and well, uh, hope that everyone that's listening is able to take that to heart too. For sure, thank you. Thank, thank you again, you. Regina. Emily, you and I have talked about how it's really neat for us to be able to hear from all these different women who are sharing their stories. They're all talking about getting in the industry, you know, navigating roadblocks, mm -hmm. but they each have different experiences. It was really neat to hear from Regina talking about establishing strong relationships. You hear people say that, but I thought I really, it stuck with me how Regina mentioned passion and just really being interested in what you're doing, how, how much that will help you. And also being genuine and having that genuine interest and to never stop learning. That's one of the pieces of advice she gave, and I really agree with that. It's very important, all of those tips there. And that's, uh, unfortunately, all the time we have for this episode of Women in the Energy podcast. We want to remind you that you can comment on this podcast on our website, oilandgasinvestor.com. We're also on SoundCloud and available through iTunes. You can also tweet us at Jessica M. News and at Emily Patsy. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, you can nominate deserving women for oil and gas investors next batch of 25 influential women in energy by visiting oilandgasinvestor.com slash women dash in dash energy. The deadline for nominations is Friday, August 3rd of this year. Join us in June for the third episode where we'll focus on managing from the top level with advice from women executives on how they own the table. I'm Jessica Morales. And I'm Emily Patsy. And we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.